This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Professor John Campbell. John uh, is not only a law professor, but he also has a company called Empirical Jury that does online jury research. How are you doing today, John? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Well, my, my background, we'll try not to go too far back, is I started as a public school teacher. I decided I should go back to school and became a lawyer. When I did, I started working at a plaintiff's side law firm in St. Louis called the Simon Law Firm, uh, where the promise they made me was, we'll let you start trying cases right away, but they may or may not be any good. Um, <laughs> and they kept their promise. I tried some good ones and I tried some tough ones. Um, and I learned a lot about being a lawyer in a hurry. Uh, after working there and running a class action department, uh, and working on some injury cases too. I joined the University of Denver Law School, uh, became a professor, and in, in my time there, came upon empirical studies of juries, started studying tort reform and things like that uh, in an academic setting and publishing things that I thought would be useful to actual practitioners. Um, founded the Denver Empirical Justice Institute, which still exists and I'm still the director of. Uh, it's a, uh, an organization that studies civil ju- justice issues and how jurors behave. Uh, And as you can imagine, some of the people I knew from my life as a plaintiff's injury lawyer and class action attorney started saying, if you can study what jurors do with big numbers and empirical measures, can you do it on individual cases? Uh, And so what we do quite a bit of now is uh, we study individual specific cases to try to figure out what's driving decision making, which jurors are behaving better and worse for the for the parties, uh, things like that. So. What is it about the empirical side of this that, that kind of caught your interest? Yeah, it, you know, I really caught the bug. I started talking to people who were studying things that had nothing to do with jury trials, but they were talking about how they were using online samples, how they were getting data fast, and how they were using statistical methods to really get at what was making things happen and whether certain things inserted or taken out of a scenario made a difference. You can imagine, we're familiar with this, for example, in medicine, uh, that we might have a double blind and half the people get a medicine and half get a placebo and we measure if there's a difference. Trying to control for everything else. Google does this. They, they launch more than one ad and then they measure the click rate. Um, but as you know, in law, including in my background as, uh, as an, a plaintiff side attorney, we didn't tend to do that. We tended to bring 10 or 15 people in and talk with them and we learned things from how they viewed it. But we all knew we probably can't trust the numbers we can't really be sure that the three women that we had that day represent women generally or whatever. There were a lot of limitations. So it started catching my interest, this idea of what if we could apply sort of scientific methods and big data methods um, 
to, to figuring out why jurors do the things they do or how the rules of evidence work and whether they work the way we think or whether that injury, jury instruction actually matters. Uh, and as I started exploring that, I kind of caught the bug. We started studying things like anchoring and closing argument, um, whether per diem arguments are in fact um, a way that drives up damages, whether jurors can think through those and handle them appropriately, which the answer is they can, um, and other things like that. And that led to then also saying, well, what if I studied an individual case? What could I learn about it if I could get two, three, four hundred people to look at it instead of, say, 10 or 15? So what are some differences then, I guess, pluses and minuses between what you do in a traditional focus group? Yeah, well, so maybe it's helpful to just talk about the what, what we do, and that'll help sort of bring it into focus. So yeah. in a traditional focus group, you would put together a, you know, a plaintiff case and a defense case, for example, and you'd present them, and you'd present them maybe in person uh, to 10 or 12 people. Now, when we work with attorneys, we put together a plaintiff's case and a defense case. We can show that to people in any form we want, all video, um, all text, text, images, and video, however we want to go about making sure that people understand it. Um, but now, instead of showing it to people in person, uh, we recruit people through a variety of tools that have, have formed online. And basically, these work like a gig economy. If you think of Uber, you can sort of work on demand. Well, there's a whole economy of workers out there who can log on, look for an hour, two hours, or eight hours of work online. We, Amazon started this as they started so many things. They started something that they called HITS, Human Intelligence Tasks. Um, and what they did was they used people to solve problems they couldn't write algorithms for. So if they wanted to sort pictures and they couldn't write an algorithm for sorting pictures of bats and birds, then they recruited hundreds of people to do it and wrote an algorithm that said, once a bunch of people agree this is a bat or a bird, use that information. So it was really sort of like a, a human machine. Um, well, they, they opened that up. And now there's a number of sites like that where we could go and we can post something that says, be a mock juror and get paid to do the work. And we can, in a day, recruit 200, 300, 400, 500 workers who come in, work through the case, provide feedback, provide decisions, and leave. And so they're working online at their own pace, in their own time. We're paying them for completing the work. Um, the difference is, is that means that we can get hundreds or even thousands of people uh, in a short period of time. And of course, we get them at a better cost because we don't drive them to the office. We don't give them donuts. We don't pay them for the commute. Um, they, there's no dead time and we get more from them because um, if they're sitting in your office, if you've ever done a traditional focus group, one challenge is the person who doesn't talk. Um, and sometimes they leave and they've said three sentences and that's all you could get out of them. And you pay them for their time and they leave. Here, people are responding individually. Um, and so we're making questions required and they have to respond to move forward. And if they're not responding, we're throwing them out of the study because we're looking for people that want to actually engage. Uh, and so that's, that's how it works. Uh, and how we get a lot of people to try to dive into the case. How, I guess, how representative are your samples as compared to, you know, the kind of people that show up for jury duty? Yeah, we get, we get a very good spread of jurors. So we get jurors from, we, we started 18, we won't take anybody under 18, and we've had jurors as old as 80, uh, and we tend to have jurors that average about 40 years old with a spread from 18 to 70. Um, okay, wow, okay, yeah, my, my concern is you'd have a bunch of, uh, underemployed people in their 20s. No, they've actually done some interesting studies on this. And what they found is, is that the number one reported reason for doing online work generally, especially tasks like this one, is that people think it's fun. So you can imagine some people do Sudoku. Well, if you can log on and you can read the first chapter of a book, which might be a task you'd find, 
and you can give feedback on the first chapter of a book. And instead of doing it for fun, they send you a check. There's people who do that. So no, we get, we get conservatives, liberals, moderates. Uh, we get old and young. We get up to about $150,000 in income. We don't get the super rich, but we don't just get people who are unemployed. When we ask, for example, employment, um, most of our workers are employed full-time uh, or part-time. Well, that's good because a lot, you know, one problem I've seen with folk, I've, I've done a lot of focus group work where other people have done, let's say they use Craigslist or an employment agency to do the recruiting. Craigslist tend to have a lot odder of a panel. The kind of people that are looking for jobs on Craigslist <laughs> did not seem to be particularly representative. Uh, and then, you know, the unemployed employment agencies, you get a bunch of bitter unemployed people, uh, or you tend to, and they tend to skew differently, I found, uh, because of what they're going through at the time. We've seen that too uh, in in-person studies in the past when, when, when I used to be an attorney hiring people to do that. Uh, the other thing is, I don't know if you had this, but you know, you'd see the same person. If you did enough focus groups, the same guy would come in. Um, and so online, it's kind of nice because we have trailing exclusions. So for example, we can track workers by ID. So we can say, all right, well, we don't want anybody who's done a study of ours ever or for six months or nine months. Uh, we can have lifetime limits. So we work very hard to make sure we never have a professional juror uh, and we've got a nice spread of jurors. Of course, there's real power in that because you can imagine if you get 30 blue collar workers out of a sample of 600, it's like having a whole focus group just of them. So now you can, yeah. with statistics, you can say, well, did they do something different than white collar folks? You can look and say, or you can look at each decade of life because you've got 30 or 40 or 50 people from each 10 year period. And you can say, do people from 60 and above, for example, behave differently than people below that? And if they do, there's accepted statistical methods to notice that and say to you, if you were, if I were working for you, I'd say, hey, above 60 years old, these people are 15% more valuable on damages and it's statistically significant. We got enough of them. We know this isn't a, a random effect. This is real. Um, there's something that this case does for people that are older that doesn't do for younger or whatever the, the sort of way we split them is. So we've developed a bunch of software that, that looks for that, that looks for any demographic characteristic or answer to a voir dire question that stands out uh, as acting different than an average juror, which of course is helpful in jury selection. Now, are you able to kind of model the, uh, the particular jury pool or the demographics of the particular venue where a case is gonna be? Absolutely, so, there's, so modeling demographics, there's a few ways to go at it. I'll try not to be too technical or boring, but the, the shortest way, I mean, one way you can do it is, you can now always pick, it's very easy to sample at the state level, and depending on the size of the county, you can often sample at the county level. Um, now, of course, if you're talking about, we just did a case not long ago that was in the creationism, that where the creationism museum is in Kentucky. It's not a big county. Uh, we couldn't get 400 people from a county like that. So the next option, if you can't sample the area, is sample an area like it. Look at its big characteristics and then find an area that's similar. So you could imagine a, a rural county in the southeast might look like several of the states in the Southeast if you just pick a few of them and then you'll match the demographics pretty closely. And then the last option, which actually is what we do a lot, is take a broader sample. Take a sample that is more than simply your venue. But if your venue is, you know, a venue that skews uh, conservative, for example, then ask, all right, what's the overall win rate? For example, percentage of jurors who vote for liability is 70%. All right, do conservatives act differently? And if so, how much? And then we'd say to you, look, we calculated a 70% win rate, but among conservatives, it's only 65%. So then when you're looking at the panel, 
you have that information available. The, the only downside to sampling too small, you get down to the county level is, you wanna get enough people from the sort of outlying groups that you can actually tell what they do. So if I wanna tell you how a Trump supporter is behaving, for example, but you're in a pretty, you tell me I'm in a pretty progressive venue. There won't be many, but there'll be a few. I need to get 30 or 40 Trump supporters to tell you how they might behave. If I only sample that county, I might not. So often I'm telling people, let's sample, let's cast the net a little wider, and then we can throw away what we don't want in the data. But let's get enough of everybody that we can actually understand how they behave. Yeah, that's what I was, my, what I was wondering. How big of a sample size do you need of a particular group to give any kind of predictive information? You know, you need... Depending, I mean, so there's two things that determine whether you can trust the information. One is how big is the effect. The bigger the effect, the less people you need. I mean, if we see a difference of, you know, 80% vote for liability versus 10%, you don't need too many people to know that's real. Um, the closer the numbers get, the more people you need to be sure you're not seeing something random, right? Um, but typically, if we have 30 or 40 people in a subset, we're going to be able to see real effects, um, and so what that means is, is for a very basic study, we're probably recruiting 250 to 275 people because, of course, they'll fill a number of different demographics. One person will be female and over 50 and a blue-collar worker, for example. Um, if we're trying to understand more about the case, for example, we get a lot of attorneys who ask us, hey, if I ask for a million dollars, $5 million, or $10 million in non-economic damages, what does that do to the case? Well, we can check because we can present the identical case to 600 jurors change only that without them knowing it. They don't know that they saw a different request for damages. And we can say, did it affect damages? Did it affect liability? Did it affect fault? If it did, we can see if that was statistically significant. So I might say to someone, look, don't ask for that big number because when you do, the win rate falls by 10%. You, jurors are pushing back. They don't like it. I might say, when you ask for that bigger number, you actually do better. Whatever you do, don't under ask. Um, so the more things we study, the more people we need. 30 per sort of subgroup, 300 for a basic study, and we've run studies up to 1,000 jurors. Oh, wow. Are there some things, just overall trends from looking at jurors? I mean, because there's, there's a lot of kind of urban legends as, you know, a African-American union worker will always find for the plaintiff, an Anglo Trump supporter will never find for a plaintiff, which, you know, I don't think are true. Uh, but are there any things you found in the data pre-COVID because uh, we'll talk about COVID later, uh, that surprised you given what the urban legends were as to who was going to be good and who wasn't on the case? Yeah. So, I mean, one you just mentioned, which is, you know, the idea that, for example, race is a consistent predictor. Um, I would say just off the top of my head, I bet 80% of the reports we send out to attorneys say there is no race effect, right? None. Um, it, it, is, it is somewhat uncommon to see race as any sort of predictor, for example. Good. Um, in, in fact, gender is, is more often a predictor, uh, which is sort of interesting. But you're more likely to see, for example, women give larger damage awards. That we see happen in a majority of cases than men, even though they might be the same on liability. Maybe they both vote for liability at exactly the same percentage of the time. Women may give more damages. Now, you know, the reason I'm hesitant to even say these things is, is that the thing we've learned most is that it's unpredictable and that the case matters. I'll just give you a very quick example. We worked on two cases that were both excessive force cases. One was a 19-year-old or 18-year-old black female, and one was a 55-year-old white male. The demographics of how jurors responded to that case were almost inverted, and the facts weren't that different. 
So what changed? The plaintiff. So what I say to people is, look, if you tell me you've got an injury case in which you can tell me the exact same facts, I'm going to ask you, is this a 65-year-old wealthy doctor? Is this a 20-year-old unemployed Hispanic worker? All those things are going to change how jurors perceive your case. So um, I think if I've been surprised by anything, it's that now these days, I don't believe in almost any of those wives' tales. Um, and I would say, we have to, you, you, I need to know a lot more about the case and I probably need to study it. I frustrate people sometimes because they'll ask me, well, what do you think on this case? And I say, I don't know. I don't guess anymore. Um, that, that, that's what data's done for me is allowed me to try to be a little more certain about what's going to happen. So people that are wanting to violate Batson and make, you know, challenges based on, on race, uh, not only is it unconstitutional and wrong, it's also ineffective. Uh, you shouldn't do it. I mean, you shouldn't do it because it's wrong and you shouldn't do it because I don't think it matters. I think yeah. there, are much, there are much more honest and decent ways to think about jurors. For example, we ran a massive academic study uh, at the University of Denver um, with, uh, with some great researchers, uh, Lee Ross from Stanford, Valerie Hines from Cornell, and uh, Jessica Salerno from Arizona State. And what we were studying was, do the answers jurors give to some basic bias questions predict how they will behave in cases? And can they be rehabilitated or is rehabilitation, for lack of a, a more refined word, bullshit? Um, and it, it, what we found was, is for example, about over 30% of jurors believe the burden of proof is too low for plaintiffs, for plaintiffs. And you know what, when they believe that, even if the judge says, can you set that aside and follow the instruction? And even though the instruction very clearly delineates preponderance of the evidence, they're still bad for the plaintiff. So we, we saw with a sample of 2000 jurors that that bias, that question predicts a bad juror for the plaintiff, that no amount of judicial rehabilitation can cure it. And that if you leave them, you infect the jury with, in my view, an unconstitutional juror, a juror who cannot listen to the evidence. Uh, so I would say there are questions like that that are far more predictive than sort of the things we might fall back on, like race or age or gender. Uh, I don't think that's, that's how we seat fair jurors or the best juror for our client. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with you. I don't, you know, I do not apply uh, stereotypes to pick jurors and have uh, found that listening uh, both to the answers to nonverbal cues. I am really interested in, in uh, supplementing my arsenal with with better questions that are more predictive, you know, scientifically and statistically, rather than going purely on gut feeling. Uh, although I think there's a role for gut feeling in trial lawyering too, because you there are nonverbal cues you pick up when you talk to an individual person that gives you an idea of how they feel about something. I completely agree. Our we our view of what we do, at least on the data side, is. We're trying to give good lawyers more information and then they're being good lawyers and deploying it. So yeah, you know, the scariest juror in the world is the jurors giving you all the right answers, but you're pretty sure they hate you. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've all had that, you know, we've all had somebody that they're saying the right things, but they scare me. Uh, right. I think you know, we, we probably can't ignore that instinct, but what we like to think is we think of it this way. Um, at least if we're doing that, we're doing it in the face of full knowledge. So if all their predictors are good, Maybe our instinct about them's wrong. Um, at least we know to think that, think that, and and ask ourselves that question before we exclude. And, I, and our instincts are often are sometimes wrong. It's hard to know. I mean, I've, I, I, it drives me nuts where during the trial people are trying to predict what other people are thinking or doing because I don't have any. Like I, I try to focus on on what I'm doing, and uh, so I'll have co-counsel during a trial. Like, well, I think this person's saying this, and this person's thinking that, and. And they're almost always wrong when we yeah. brief jurors after the trial. Um, 
you know, a lot of times someone crossed their arms because they were cold or not because they didn't like what <laughs> said or, you know. Right. right. So this empirical stuff is really cool. It, do you think there's still a role for traditional focus groups? Oh, absolutely. We, we, so we, we actually work in these days, in the COVID days, even more. We work a lot with jury consultants. And a lot of times we find ourselves either officially working with them. So, for example, a friend of mine, Sean Claggett, um, we found ourselves working on a number of things together. Sean does a, a more traditional role of in-person focus groups or now virtual focus groups through Zoom. Um, but we find ourselves working together, you know, pretty often because um, we can complement one another. Um, the other thing that happens sometimes is even though I'm not directly working with them, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day and they said, well, I think I'm, I'm going to have my jury scientist help me put together the presentation we use with you. And then sometimes we have jury consultants who come directly to us and say, look, we've learned some things and now we want to see if they hold up when we, when we put them in front of hundreds of people and we want to refine how much this effect is. We think this type of person is not liking our case or we think this frame works. We'd really like to measure if it works and if so, how much. Um, and so I think there's a complementary role. Um, so, so that's really how we find ourselves working the most often. Awesome. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. How does the cost compare, and you don't have to give exact numbers, but between doing the empirical jury research and doing the traditional focus groups? Well, as you know, it's a hard question how our cost compares because jury consultants vary. So you can think of jury consultants that openly advertise that to do, you know, four focus groups on the weekend, they're going to charge you $50,000, right? Uh, to come out and stay at their house for a week and talk through your case, you're going to spend $50,000 and some extras. Um, you can think of others who, who charge ten dollars or $15,000 to do a, a good job. Uh, so, so there's that range. Um, we, at a per juror cost, are the, the cheapest way to study a case without a doubt. And by the way, I should mention, I mean, we don't just gather data. Our jurors give us open-ended comments and feedback. We give our clients you know, thousands of comments from the jurors over a series of questions. So you're also hearing the voice of the jurors. Um, so at a per juror cost, we've looked at it. There are some in-person studies that cost between $500 and $5,000 per juror, if you think of it as buying information, a unit of information. Um, ours tends to be $30 to $50. Uh, so at, at that level, uh, I don't think you know, in-person stuff would ever be the same. Our actual studies tend to run from somewhere around $10,000 to somewhere around $25,000, depending on the case we're studying. If you were talking about what do you actually spend on a given case, and then we have some cases, which I'm happy to say, uh, we love them, we get in the boat and row, I'm a lawyer, my wife's a lawyer, and we just say, look, we'll spend the money. If we all lose, we'll lose together. Uh, but let's find a relationship that works for all of us. Awesome. Yeah, you know, that's actually, you know, with most consultants now, of course, focus groups, if once you kind of 
get it, you can do some of it yourself and, and save money. Although it's still, you still have to have a place. You have to recruit people um, and pay them. Uh, you have to do either hire a service or do the marketing to recruit people. Um, so, but I would say that, you know, the quotes I've, I've gotten from you in the past, it's definitely, you know, it's tended to be less than most jury consultants would have, would have charged me to do a group with, you know, 10 to 30 focus group members. Yeah, that probably means we're not good business people, but um, the uh, but I mean, you know, we stumbled into this. Well, I started studying these because I was studying it in the academic setting, and my good friend John Simon, uh, who's an inner circle member, great lawyer, taught me to be a lawyer, and my wife, who's a great lawyer, both had cases set for the same day for trial in the same venue, and we studied those two cases using this model just to see if it would work. It worked in both. It was very helpful in one to settle the case. The mediator was stunned by the data. And in the other, it affected what, what John Simon asked for in closing. And I think it, you know, made a good case better. Um, we were studying cases for people because we got invited out to talk to a variety of groups, AIEG and the inner circle. We were studying cases. We didn't have a business. I mean, we were just, I was a lawyer practicing law, uh, teaching at a law school and, uh, and starting to study cases. So we, 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 uh, although we love to make money doing it, I think I can tell you, this, is, this has become the thing that I love most in life. Uh, attorney comes to me with an amazing, great case, but a hard case, hard issues, tough liability, challenging background facts. And our goal is let's figure this thing out. Uh, let's understand what's really making it tick. Let's figure out what interventions make a difference. Um, that, that man, that's fun. Well, I know my partner and I were talking yesterday on a case and we, you know, we plaintiffs have been trying this particular product case one way and, and not particularly successfully. And we think we've come up with a different angle. Uh, but we want to know if it's going to work or not. And we thought yeah. rather than, you know, bringing in 10 people, uh, you know, before we get to the point where we're going to be designating experts and, you know, trying to figure out, do we spend any more time and effort on this theory? Do we do any more discovery on this theory? Let's test it. Let's see if our gut is right that we found a winner or if, you know, we're just believing our own BS. Yeah. You know, there's a fun, we could do that. There's, that'd be fun. And the way we often do that so we can actually measure it against the old way is, you present half the jurors the case sort of in the traditional frame and the other half this new frame. And what's neat is if you get enough of them, if it look, it's, it's real simple. If we look at it and you're winning 75% of jurors with your new approach and 60% with the old approach, we don't have to think much more about what we should do, do we? Um, exactly. The, the data leads us to the right spot. So yeah, that's even, a, I love that. Maybe even triple split it. Maybe, you know, one way only, the old way only and, and presenting them two options and then seeing, you know, because my theory, if you give the jury two options, you suddenly have to prove both instead of either or. Uh, but am I right or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be fun to find out. So can you give some examples uh, of stuff you've learned from cases that would be interesting that, you know, that obviously there's a lot of stuff you probably can't talk about because you have ongoing cases and, you know, confidentiality, but some interesting things you found. Sure. Let me just talk about a couple. Um, so one is, is that, you know, there's some guys out there now who are saying, if you ask for more, you get more, which um, frankly, the first time that was said was in the 1950s in the Chicago Jury Project, a huge academic study. Um, we have found that to be true. The anchoring principle, the idea that larger numbers pull jurors towards those numbers, even if they, because they're negotiating off of them, we found to be true. But what we found that is really fascinating is what's referred to in the academic literature as the fusion effect. That is that the amount you ask for directly affects liability. So we have seen, for example, that even though we presented an hour-long presentation of evidence, and the only thing we change is the five seconds in which you say the amount you're asking for as a plaintiff's attorney, for example, 
we've seen that sway the liability findings by 10%. 10%, you're, lo- you're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. And the only thing you change is how much you ask for. So wow. how, does that wor- how does that work? Well, what, here's the thing. Most times, we're seeing liability climb as you ask for more until really? a point that we would call the cliff. So there's always a cliff. You can get so high that jurors think you're crazy and they'll start to resist. But my experience is most plaintiff's attorneys are a little low. And, and here's the other thing. We had an attorney related to that. We had an attorney who was in a capped state. Non-economic damages were capped at, I don't know, $300,000 or something. And they said, well, for non-economic damages, I'm just going to ask for the $300,000 because if I ask for any more, I'm, ups- you know, I'm, I'm risking upsetting jurors and I won't get it anyway. And I said, please let me test that, please. So we asked, we did one where we asked for 300,000. We did another where we asked for something like 10 million because the case justified it. It was a serious injury case. You know what happened? Liability went up when you asked for 10 million because jurors were viewing that, that small conservative ask as a lack of confidence in the case. Wow. Um, so there can be very serious consequences to what you request in damages. And I would say on the plaintiff side, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, so I'm sorry for the defense attorneys listening, although this will be useful to them in a different way. I would say plaintiff's lawyers, I tell lawyers a lot on the phone or in calls, you're your own damage cap, right? If the jurors give more than you asked for, you really messed up because that means you were way low. Um, and the whole smell test that many of us were taught, be very careful not to ask for any more than exactly what jurors could stomach. And if they're ever upset, I'm not so sure that's true. I'm not so sure that's the best way to try a case. So that's one. I'll just mention one more, more if it's not too boring. Um, yeah, no, it's just great. I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll mention one more really f- sort of um, fun finding. Uh, so let me just give you a very specific example. We find that testing whether witnesses are effective or not is very useful because it checks our own prejudices and biases. And as lawyers, we're not that great at this, uh, at, at, at judging. So let me just give you one example. We were working on a case where the witness was a man who was suing for legal malpractice. The, the male attorney who was a partner in the firm that we met with said, this is the best witness I've ever had. He was a quarterback in college. He's a big, tall guy. He's good looking. He's articulate. He'll carry our case. The female partner sitting there with him said, are you kidding right now? He's a jerk. And I mean, just like night and day, their opinion of this witness. I said, well, we'll show some video of him and see what happens. We showed video of this witness and 55% of all jurors said they didn't believe him and thought he wasn't credible. And when they did, the win rate among those jurors was something like 20%. Wow. Well, that was, a, that was one of those things where a simple five-minute video clip and getting three or 400 jurors to tell us what they saw might have avoided a, a, a colossal mistake uh, because what I've seen is, is that we are very bad, including myself, at guessing what jurors will think of witnesses. Um, and, and so that's another one that to me is always worth doing is trying to figure out and check our own blind spots. Um, yeah. there's been a lot of, a lot of fun things like that. It's amazing what happens when you let enough people look at a case, they'll almost always find something you missed and you're awfully glad they told you before trial. Yeah, that is so cool. Um, uh, that's the, one of the scary things I'm doing this podcast is I learned about all this really, really cool stuff I want to do. And then it's just finding enough time in the day, uh, and enough money in the bank <laughs> to do it all. Yeah, I understand. So we are living in some interesting times right now. Uh, between, you know, there's COVID, there's now all the, you know, a massive new civil rights movement, and then possibly a developing of a, almost a little bit, a little, I sense a little bit of a backlash because of, you know, 
between some writing and then some, I would say, poor messaging on, you know, people chanting defund the police and that being interpreted as getting rid of police departments altogether. Um, and so I, I'm wondering, have you done any research to see, you know, are juror attitudes changing or then is a jury poll changing at all during this time? Yeah, we've actually been digging into this quite a bit and I'm going to, uh, forgive me if I look like I'm navigating. I, I, I made some bullet points because I'll just, if, I'll just share a couple of things here. Okay. We've surveyed, We've surveyed about 1,500 jurors, um, and we've asked very specific questions about COVID-19, about trial options, because, of course, we're all wondering about in-person trials versus Zoom trials versus some form of virtual trial, um, and there's a lot of organizations looking into that and courts studying it. So uh, just a couple of, of, of initial notes. Three out of four jurors report being nervous or somewhat nervous to respond to jury duty. Um, 30% know someone who has COVID-19 or had it. 17% know someone who was seriously ill or died. Wow. Now, how about this? I'll give you just a couple of data points, and you'll see where I'm headed right away. We asked people if a court said it would exclude people over 65, uh, which I've seen people talking about, or it would exclude people who have underlying health conditions like heart problems, lungs, or diabetes. Um, do you have that, and would you ask to be excluded? We found that at least 20% of all jurors would ask to be excluded, and I think a court would almost certainly have to exclude in good conscience. We found that 46% of jurors, almost half, said they would actively seek to avoid jury duty. 30% would specifically ask to be excluded because they're uncomfortable in closed spaces. Another 9% said they would ask to be excluded because they'd refuse to wear a mask. Interesting. So if you put those numbers together, you got, you got one in five that are probably going to get excluded for health reasons or age. You got 30% that are saying, I will actively ask to leave because I don't want to be in a closed space. You got another 10% basically who say, I'm going to ask to leave because I refuse to wear a mask because it violates my constitutional rights. Just that tells us that to seat a jury, we probably need to expect to lose 50%. We need a melt of 50% of jurors before we ask a single voir dire question that isn't about COVID. Um, to me, okay, that, you I, know, that raises that, real implications. I've got a follow-up. Do you, do you have any information yet as to okay so we're going to have a less representative jury pool then uh, if the either the judge is going to force people there that don't want to be there who are mad about it and feel scared or we've got a less representative jury pool because we've got a large percentage off are you finding about whether any of those people would tend to skew one way or another yes uh so as far as skew goes there's a couple of data points so one is is that jurors who say we asked jurors are you nervous and as i mentioned most of them are the ones who say, I'm not nervous at all about jury duty in the COVID-19 era, um, skew heavily defense. So the people who are most likely to show up, who say, I have no qualms about showing up and I won't ask to get out because I'm not nervous. Um, they skew defense. In, in the studies we looked at, I think it was about 15% on liability, which isn't nothing, right? You take a 50-50 case and you make it a 65% win rate for the defendant, 35 for the plaintiff. That's a big move. Yeah. Um, the other we saw was that the jurors who say, that they, are, they know someone who's been seriously harmed by COVID go the other way. That they are, there's about 17% of jurors who say, I know someone who was seriously harmed or at least seriously ill or died of COVID. Those jurors go the plaintiff's way about 11% more often. So you've got these sort of push and pull tides. The question none of us quite know is who will actually show up and who will the court exclude? Um, 
But I think if I had to handicap it right now, I would tell you that in average cases, I think it's skewing defense. And the jury already skewed, in my view, slightly defense based on some studies we've done about burden to proof, non-economic damages, attitudes. I think it's going to skew a little more. Um, and I, I think the next risk is if the court doesn't then allow real uh, voir dire on top of that, because they've already used so much time on COVID and they're worried about busting the panel. I can imagine judges saying, God, we just lost half our jurors. We got to seat a jury. We're not going to lose too many more for exclusion. Then I really think you have concerns because uh, academic research I've done says that in the absence of meaningful voir dire and meaningful exclusion, um, there's enough prevalence of juror bias that you're going to struggle to seat jurors who are listening to the evidence. And how about the, the people that absolutely think it's a violation of their constitutional rights to wear a mask. They're not going to wear a mask. They don't, you know, I guess they just don't believe uh, that there is a health risk. How did those jurors skew? Well, so this is, this gets very strange. Overall, across cases, the, the, the early data is that they skew defense. But with a caveat, um, I'll give you an interesting caveat. We took two medical malpractice cases that we had run in the past. Um, these are medical malpractice cases that we'd stun, uh, studied that were fully detailed, full cases ready for trial that we'd studied for private attorneys. So we had exact win rates and exact damages. And what we did was we ran them in May. We just ran them again. We didn't change them at all. So the only reason they would change is if something in the air changed. And that was a little before most of the protests. So most of what was in the air was the COVID-19 effect. And we wanted to see in medical malpractice cases what happened. And what was interesting was, is that if you just looked at the win rate, the cases didn't seem to change much. So we didn't see a skew for the defense or the plaintiff, even though many people had predicted a skew for the defense because people loved doctors and were clapping. Right. Um, but then we tried to figure out why. You know, why is it we're seeing high numbers of people say they respect doctors, something like 60% saying they think doctors are heroes. Um, but we're not seeing a decline in medical malpractice liability. And we figured it out. I mean, one of the things, and this is, this is sort of a long way to get to your question about what about some of these people who have very strong views on, for example, civil liberties? We found that Trump supporters in one of our medical malpractice cases, people who openly said they would vote for Trump again and supported him now, were better for the plaintiff than for the defense. In fact, they were driving the win rate up enough that even though the other jurors were falling off, they were keeping the overall win rate about like it was before. Now, I can tell you, you asked me about predictors. We have never run a medical malpractice case in which Trump supporters were good for the plane. Never. So to see that happen, we were trying to figure out why. And, and, you know, I can tell you, if you ever saw that picture in the news of Trump supporters protesting the right to be out and not wear masks, and I, I don't, not just Trump supporters, but many of them openly Trump supporters, many of them libertarian and very conservative, and they were, you know, driving down streets saying, we have a right to be out. We shouldn't be confined. Who stepped in front of the car? Well, the protesters who stepped in front of the car, and sometimes they weren't just protesters, were often dressed in scrubs. Yeah. They were dressed as doctors. And when you think about that image, something has happened where Trump supporters have, some of them, have a sort of resistance to doctors and, and a resistance to this idea that doctors are so helpful. Um, and, and incredibly, that's making them more amenable to medical malpractice cases. So we're seeing some really unusual upside down sort of effects in MedMal. If you put MedMal aside, then I would tell you, I think it's skewing slightly defense in who will show up for jury duty. But if you actually look at how they vote, 
um, you're not, we're not seeing pronounced effects. Okay. Do you think that these attitudes are going to continue to change and evolve and evolve as the months go by? Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, look, the, what we know today is so heavily dependent on what happens in the next month or two. I mean, you know, I was looking at the news before we started talking and you have states that are, that are now reporting surges in the in coronavirus. And you have states, one state, Arizona, that has asked to, for its hospitals to start treating this as an emergency again because they're seeing numbers that worry them about filling up their ICUs. It, you know, it, that sort of thing or a resurgence in the fall uh, could fundamentally alter at least the cases most deeply affected. And it could certainly alter the comfort of jurors showing up for jury duty. I'll just mention one other thing about that, about jury duty. We studied, we asked um, jurors, 1,200 jurors, to tell us which kind of case they'd like to attend. Um, and we gave them options. We gave them an option that is sort of pie in the sky, but I think is completely doable, which would be, what if you could watch the case from home on your own time? Or what if you could watch the case from home on live stream? Or we gave them some other options. What if you could go to court, watch it live streamed, but not in a crowded room, and then another option was, what if you can just go to court and basically do a normal trial the way they're normally done? You'll just, you'll just be distanced a little and wear a mask. What we found was four out of 10 jurors said, what I'd really like to do is watch the case from home on my own time. Well, that's very interesting because if, you were to, if a court were to try that, if they were to record the trial, edit out the objections, edit out the dead time, edit out the time the judge had a, a bench conference, edit out the time the judge had to talk to somebody about a different case, edit out the time the lawyer couldn't find the exhibit, you would get a condensed trial of all the evidence and all the witnesses. And jurors would stop worrying about whether they're going to be exposed to the coronavirus. We would see a more representative jury. And with today's technology, there are ways to show them that trial, make sure they're paying attention, check in on their attention, and then have them deliberate if you'd like. Um, and so we found that four out of 10 jurors thought that was the best choice. So if we're talking about how attitudes are going to change, I think part of what we have to talk about is what are we asking jurors to do? Uh -huh. Because they're going to act differently if we sit them in a courtroom in masks than if we try to do something that respects their concerns. Um, and so, you know, you could probably tell from my answer, I have some strong feelings about the best way to proceed if we want to set, if we want to seat truly representative jurors. Right. Uh, and, and representative juries. Yeah, I think we're probably going to have a tough time convincing a court, you know, and, and I just heard this for the first time from you today. So I'm, I'm still processing this idea of giving them a package of videos to look at. And when everyone's watched it, then they get together and deliberate. You know, the, there's a lot of logistical challenges to has everyone watched it all. And then, you know, are they going to finish near enough in time where it's going to be fresh and everybody mind to get together because uh, it's one thing to make a decision on your own it's another one that, to then go and deliberate on it uh, and have everyone yeah. ready uh, the other option I guess would be just you know the traditional trial but watch it live via zoom how do mm -hmm. they feel about that so jurors uh, slightly more jurors prefer that option um, either at home or in a courtroom because of course you could also put them in a bigger space in the court maybe the convening room instead of the jury room um, and they could watch um, about 40% of jurors like one of those two options as well. Now, I will tell you just to sort of, you know, so we can push the frontier on, on jury trials. Let me, just, let me just play devil's advocate on the editing. All you need to, to show jurors a trial and be sure that they finish at the same time is, and I say this because this is a lot of what we do, um, 
you, you video record it, right? Which these days is not that, it's not an expensive process. You record it, you cut it out, you need somebody to edit. And then you tell the jurors they must watch so many hours per day. You tell the lawyers for each of these segments, we want you to agree on five questions that are very simple, but you, if you watched the videos, you'd know the answers, right? You recruit a big sample of jurors, you make them answer the questions. If people start failing, you remove them and you end up with a, the people that watched. You have them watch it on a schedule and you know when they'll finish and then you have a deliberation day um, and you could do it. And the funny thing is, is we would use less juror time in total yeah. because they wouldn't be sitting in the benches waiting on us. We know how that goes. Sometimes we only present two hours of evidence in a day uh, because so many things come up and something we didn't expect and a witness cancels and the judge has a problem. Um, so I think, although it sounds far-fetched, um, I think it could be done. And I think we would avoid what I'm very worried about, which is that we start having juries that have significant hunks of the population who aren't there at all. Um, which I, I, I think then we get, we, we really risk undermining what we think juries do well, which is give us fair decisions that are representative of their community. One concern I've seen from, I've heard from plaintiff lawyers, and it's, it's one, uh, frankly, that I have a gut concern about myself, um, but I'm really interested to see what you think because you, you've seen so much online results, and, and, is that without having our body language and eye contact and connection, without actually seeing the plaintiff live, that a juror can't give a big uh, damage verdict. Yeah, I don't think that's right. I understand the feeling. I do. Um, I don't think that's true. Um, so I will tell you that, for example, we have had a number of cases that we've studied um, where we predicted a number and the case went to trial and the number was within 10%. Uh, our number was within 10% of the verdict. Um, and that includes numbers like, you know, a $37 million verdict in an auto case uh, that had to do with product liability or uh, where we predicted a nine figure verdict. Uh, in a trucking case, and it was. Um, so we see jurors, if you look, if you show jurors the real evidence, you show them things that show the severity of the burns, uh, you communicate to them, you let them watch day in the life videos. They hear the, the you know, I just did one recently where the, the guy's showing how he gets out of bed and has to lift his leg with a hook because the leg doesn't work. What it looks like to go to the, how to get into the bathroom to even try to start to get ready to take a shower. Um, our experience is, you know, jurors take that seriously. If you've ever watched a movie and cried, um, I'm not saying I have, but if you ever have, <laughs> maybe I have a few times, if you ever watched a movie and cry, you know, that good video can move you much in the same way that human interaction can. We just might have to think more in terms of how to present something on video as compared to how to present something in theater. I think that's right. I mean, you'd have to think, all right, they're going to see it differently. We might think more about you know, we might think about some different things, but I don't think we would necessarily be changing the fundamentals of what we do. And I'll tell you, in terms of mistrials and everything else, there's nothing worse than getting a week and a half in a trial, something getting admitted and then figuring out it shouldn't have been and worrying the case is blown or, or a witness yeah. blurting something out. But you know what? The judge rules on that. It gets, it gets thrown out and the jury never sees it in an edited video. So there's also some advantages in terms of guaranteeing that things that shouldn't mislead jurors don't right interesting i mean I, i'm i'm of course we got to get a judge that'll go with this too uh but this it's a really interesting concept of a different way to do it i, I think that's uh and, and judges are out there looking for ideas um i mean they're really struggling of how we're going to have civil jury trials 
Um, That's the thing. We can't afford not to try cases for, for a year. Um, there's real concern that it's going to be hard to seat panels. And my concern is the judge is going to say, all right, all these people are dropping like flies. All right, let's just seat who's left and let's right. not do much to exclude them. And as you know, I mean, you know, none of us and our clients, most importantly, nobody's client should spend years waiting for their day in court and then lose the trial because three jurors were seated who could have never voted for that client, no matter what evidence they heard, then what were the three years for? And so to me, you know, that's the greatest fear. When you seat juries that are not able to listen to evidence, you rob the client of their constitutional right to a jury trial. And that means really all that you did as an attorney, all they did as a client, all the other side did, none of it mattered because people voted on a bias. And I, I'm really right. worried about that. I'm worried about us uh, 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 getting judges. I mean, we already have federal judges. Some of them are great, but we have federal judges who say no voir dire or 10 minutes of voir dire. Yep. If we seat juries in this era with that approach, I don't know how we can have any confidence that we're getting fair results. So, you know, I think sometime, you know, I think this summer we're still very unlikely to have jury trials. Um, I have one case set uh, in North Carolina the first week of August. They haven't said we're not going to go yet, so I'm really hoping I'm, I'm raring to go and try a case. Yeah. Uh, but at some point, sometime this year, I predict that some courts somewhere in this country are going to start. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if lawyers may have an option, like saying, this is what we're going to do. They're going to be modified procedures. Do you want to have your trial or do you want to go wait till next year? What are some things you recommend doing when we're facing that decision to make the most informed decision we can for our clients? Yeah. Um, well, selfishly, I would say, if you know the procedures, let's study them because let's not guess. I mean, we can get some answers about who it's likely to exclude and whether that matters to your case. So, I mean, it'd be as simple as saying, these are the people that look like they won't sit under what that court's saying it's going to do. Um, what do they do on your case? Are we significantly prejudicing your case? Um, the other thing is, is, you know, yeah, I, w I would. Yes. So that's one. The other thing is I'm thinking it through about sort of what are the best, you know, what do you do? Um, if you have a court that is going to, um, change procedures radically for how jurors interact with evidence. Um, I would be thinking a lot about whether that, that skews how certain groups will perceive the evidence. So one thing, for example, that we haven't studied yet, but I'm very interested in is if they were watching it uh, by Zoom, um, do we start to see a different effect for age groups? Because we're going to have people that that feels like life to, right? That have friends they've never met. Uh, younger people maybe who say, oh, I've got a great friend across country. I've never seen him in real life, but we talk on, online. And we're going to have people on that jury panel who have never been on Zoom until that day. Uh, and, you know, I'd want to know a lot about how that, how that interacts uh, and a lot about whether that's good or bad for your case. The problem is it's very case specific, right? There are cases where I think that could be highly advantageous and there are cases where that would terrify me. Yeah. Well, I guess we got to keep, you know, studying and uh, trying to make an informed decision? Or are we just someone who's just going to roll the dice and hope for the best, which is probably on a significant case, not the best approach to take? I think that's right. You know, the, the, uh, I think you're right that there's going to be a number of trials. I was just talking to an attorney in California and they have a rule there, uh, as I understand it, that, that, you know, there's like a, there's a certain number of years, I think it's five, by which a case should be tried barring extraordinary circumstances. And they're coming up on deadlines. So this attorney had just gotten an order that said, 
hell or high water, you're trying the case in August because otherwise we'll blow the deadline and I can't start doing that. And so I think for a variety of reasons, federal judges who they keep their statistics on how they move cases, states like that that have, you know, uh, rules about moving civil trials, much like a speedy trial in a criminal case. Our I agree with that, you. I think we're going to see think this is all a hoax. Yeah, judges that think it's a hoax. <laughs> judge, by the way, by the way, we were talking about, you know, getting a judge to be in on this video editing. I, you know, I think we could find some judges who do. I, my experience is some judges who really don't like jury trials much, but they like bench trials, right? Because they don't have to go through all the complicated jury stuff right away. And they don't always have to have, you know, approach the bench, turn on the white noise, have the jury leave the room, whatever. Um, you could, you could probably convince some judges that recording the trial will save them time, uh, because their staff can deal with the logistics, uh, and the attorneys can write the comprehension questions to make sure jurors paid attention. So, um, I don't know. I, I'd be interested to see if, uh, if we see some folks drifting towards some form of virtual trial or at least live streamed in home trial where you could still monitor that the jurors in front of the screen, you could have regular attention checks, uh, but you don't drag them into court um, because then we wouldn't be talking about losing half of our jurors to COVID effects. Yeah. And the fact is in, in the courtroom, you do not have 12 people all paying close attention at the same time the whole day anyway. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've never had anything but a rap, just wrapped attention. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I agree. You know, it's an interesting aside to that is that, um, there's, good, there's some good research out of the Arizona Jury Project where they got to, to actually take transcripts of 50 juries that debate, deliberated cases that even though jurors don't pay attention, the good news is we don't get too many decisions from juries on bad facts because what happens is, you know, somebody in the jury room says, no, he said the light was red. Uh, and, you know, six other jurors say, no, he didn't. He said it was green. I've got it right here in my notes. Right. And what they found was that most inaccurate things from not paying attention get corrected in, in deliberation. Um, and so that, I think that's a, a good, a good thing for all of us that believe jury trials are the, the best, not perfect, but best system we have for deciding cases. Yeah. And that's, you know, while you typically don't have all 12 paying attention every second, somebody is. And, yeah. And that's, Do you know the, uh, the, the, what they found in that the number one predictor of who your four person would be, uh -uh. the number one predictor of who your four person would be. Unfortunately, you only know this after trial starts is the person who takes the most notes. Huh? So that statistically, nothing predicted it better, race, gender, age, education, than just how many pages of notes did the person take? Because the person who's been dug in and serious is demonstrating a studiousness and concern, and the other jurors see it, and they're also more likely to volunteer. Interesting. One thing that's kind of I've wondered about is, how do you know these people that are getting paid to do an online uh, jury project, how do you know they're actually paying attention, you know, that they take it seriously. Yeah, well, so we, well, there's a couple of ways. So, I mean, on the back end, we've seen that the results we get match real-life courtroom results. Uh, so that's maybe the best way to know something's working. Uh, is when you see, if you say it's going to be a $35 million verdict and it's 35 and a half, um, that feels good. Now, how do you get people then that are, that are going to give that kind of information, real juror decisions? So we've developed a lot of ways, and I think these are sort of, they, these are must-haves if you do this yourself, if you, frankly, you ought to do them anytime you're gathering information from people. Um, so we have people, for example, when they're entering their demographics, um, when they're all done entering their demographics and they think they're finished, um, they come to a new page that says, you must repeat some answers. And if those aren't identical, the people are thrown out because you ought to know whether you own a gun or not. 
You ought to know how many kids you have. You ought to know if you live in an urban, suburban, or rural area. And if they don't match perfectly, we throw them out. When they're answering questions, we'll say, you know, tell us if you agree, disagree, whatever, with a variety of questions. And one of them will just say, pick the third answer to show us your reading. And if they don't, they're thrown out. And then after, and this is interesting because it's both for online studies, but it would be for any form of sort of virtual trial, maybe even Zoom trials. Um, we ask jurors after they've viewed the evidence, five or six very basic questions, sometimes even physical questions like, when you were watching the video of the plaintiff, what was shown? And the questions are him getting out of bed, him entering the bathtub, him getting into the van. If they don't answer those questions correctly, we throw them out. So what we do then is we're both telling jurors we're watching. They know we're paying attention. And two, we're routing out anybody who's rushing through just to get paid. Uh, it tends to exclude five to 10% of jurors. And then okay. what you get left is you get the people who really paid attention and then you know you're dealing with real data. Awesome. Yeah, I noticed I did online defensive driving once and they had the same thing. What color was the car? You know, could see if you're really watching the video. Right. Did, you, did you really see it? Yep. And I have to confess, once I had to go rewatch the module. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Those aren't the most exciting videos. Yeah. One, one other uh, concern I've had is, uh, you know, since we're the plaintiffs and we're the ones that follow the lawsuit, the jurors that are scared for their health to be there, but maybe get forced to be there by the judge. The judge just says fear is not enough to exclude you. Are they going to blame us and hold it against us as plaintiffs for dragging them into the courthouse against their will? Yeah, we were wondering about that too, because there was some early research from, I think it was AJ, and this was right in the teeth of it. As I recall, it might've even been in March uh, that they were looking at who do you blame? And it looked like they were blaming, it looked like jurors who had to come to trial would blame the plaintiff. So we asked almost the exact same question of these 1,200 jurors. And what we found was, is that first of all, it was a relatively small number who blamed anyone. The most common answer was, I wouldn't blame anyone. I understand this has to happen. The next most common answer, not great for judges, I guess, was I blame the court. I mean, they sent me the, the notice. A very smaller percentage, something like 20% of all jurors would blame the plaintiff or the defense, and they blamed them in about equal numbers. So what I would say is, is although we see some selection effects and some, some, some effects on who will show up for jury duty based on their own views, beliefs, and fears, what we don't see is some overwhelming blame of plaintiff's attorneys. And so, although I have some reservations about, about how we go about trying cases in the fall to make sure we have fair jurors, what I don't believe is that, for example, plaintiff's attorneys should believe that they should discount their cases at settlement or that they should be afraid to try these cases. Because I think with some clever thinking, some careful work, uh, some good jury selection, I, I, I don't expect this to skew defense. Uh, when I do expect it to, to skew perhaps to the defense is if you don't allow Vordir, uh, probably more rigorous Vordir than even was allowed before, uh, or you don't carefully think through which jurors you're excluding um, based on COVID. Great. Now I'm looking, I'm, you know, I'm excited about getting back in there and, and getting back into trying cases, but I certainly uh, want to make sure I'm armed with as much information as possible so that it's not a suicide mission. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to keep studying this because we view it as something that's evolving. And so what we want to see is not only what we see right now, but what the trend lines look like over the next three or six months. I mean, it, we ought to be able to start to tell, is this getting better or worse? Are jurors starting to settle down? Is it going to be easier or harder to see to you know seat a jury? 
Um, because I think even stuff like that informs when we talk to the judge about calling the veneer panel, you know, maybe we would have asked him to call 60. And now we're going to ask that judge to call 120. But that's the sort of thing we have to do to make sure we don't bust a panel and waste our time or worse, seat a jury that we're not really happy with because we think we got to make it work. And then if we're trying to see them six feet apart, then that's a whole other logistical uh, yeah. Yeah. issue. <laughs> Spread them out over four courtrooms and you just drift. You're a, floating, you're a floating lawyer. You float from court to court and ask questions. You know, we may do that. Or I've heard a high school, you know, barring a high school gym uh, or, you know, some <laughs> other auditorium for jury selection so that you could have appropriate spacing. I know that. Uh, I heard that too. You know, and, and it's not just juries. I mean, we're, we put on at our firm, a, a, or I put on a trucking boot camp once a year. Um, and we were going to have our first one in May, and obviously we did not have it in May for COVID concerns, and right. so we're tentatively moved it to August. You know, in Texas, we can have things, so, you know, do we cancel it? Do we go virtual? You know, our tentative plan is to get a room for 250 people and only seat 50 so that we can space them out, and then people who want to come can come. People who don't want to go can, you know, either get it on video or just there's no requirement that anyone listen to Michael Cowan about trucking uh, cases. And, uh, but, but we've sensed uh, enough of people who want to go that we, we want to do something, but we want to try to do it safely. So I think, you know, yeah. the courts are struggling with the same thing. It is an interesting dance, isn't it? I mean, this, we, we want to be safe and we want to keep distance. I think most of us understand that, but we need, we need contact. And I, I've found myself, you know, I get these invitations to register for virtual conferences and I'm not motivated in the same way because part of what I love about conferences is the people I bump into in the hallway. Um, yeah, it is it, there. You lose something uh, when you, when you say, well, you can log in and watch the, watch the class. Yeah. I don't, um, the only two conferences I've registered for virtually one, I haven't even attended. They told me I can, I can look at the video was just to support my state trial horse association to make sure that, we didn't lose money and that the vendors didn't all abandon us because they spent <laughs> money and they didn't have enough people that signed up to feel like they marketed to them. Right. And then the, the AAJ uh, annual conference, because I'm, I'm a member of two groups, the uh, litigation groups where I need to, I'm on the board of one and I need to give a report at a meeting. So I need to be registered for it. But right. frankly, at this point, you know, when you get on the speaker circuit, you get exposed to so much. And then I'm so specialized in what I do that I've heard the majority of speeches at a program before. I've heard the content before. So I'm really there to network with the people and yep. we're losing all that virtually. I know we're, we're just reopening. We're doing a soft reopening of our office this week. So up, you know, up to, we usually have 30 people in there up to 10, you know, right. uh, make sure everyone's in an office with a door. People with cubicles are having to take turns using offices and then making sure we sterilize between people. Sure. Uh, but I, I will tell you that, you know, going back and seeing colleagues in the office, having lunch with people yesterday was just glorious. Um, yeah. We have a human need for contact that. Uh, Absolutely. We've had a very similar experience ourselves and with our kids to see, you know, it's not the same to say, well, you can have a video chat, right? It's just, it's just not. It's just not. And I think the, as time goes by, I think you're going to have more and more people. And I think you see it. I mean, willing to take a risk and, you know, I, I see, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I've read on online forums, a lot of, uh, anger, you know, from let's say people on the right, like I can't go to work or I can't take my kids somewhere, but it's okay for 60,000 people to march cheek to cheek in a protest. You were uh, reading no my one. mind. I mean, it's, it's been a really, you were reading my mind. It's been a really complicated issue, hasn't it? Because you understand, at least I do. I mean, I see a pressing need for reform. Uh, but 
um, yeah, when you see people crowded shoulder to shoulder, uh, you think, look, the virus doesn't care why you're there. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, I think most people think we'll probably see some troubling numbers in a couple of weeks. Um, yep. And we're starting to see some now, right? I mean, we're starting to see some numbers that don't look so good for both from reopening. In my view, for example, my mom still lives in Dallas. I was born and raised in Texas. And, uh, you know, she told me they were reopening. And I said, right now? <laughs> she said, yeah. And I was just talking to her on the phone the other day. I said, mom, they had the highest single day number of cases that they've ever had in Texas like two days ago. So please don't, she's 77. So I, you know, I was saying, please don't just run out of the house without a mask and start chatting uh, because she's in that category of people that for her, the virus certainly isn't the flu. Exactly. It's a, it's a complex thing. I'm glad I'm not the one having to make, I mean, the the struggle we had just with the decisions for our office because we care about our people um, was tough enough. I, I don't envy the people having to make these tough decisions, balancing public health and economics, uh, which sure. is real. It's, it's at this point when there's not a, an end date in sight, you know, when it was, let's all stay home for a month. That was easy yeah. to do yeah. when it's okay. Well, we may or may not get a virus in the next one to two years. I mean, I'm sorry. We, we may or may not get a vaccine in the next one to two years. It, it becomes a different equation. And, and so it's really a lot tougher because I can't do this forever. Uh, and no, no, you I know, agree. So I've, yeah. It, it, no, I think almost, I, I go between being an absolute terror and then wanting to go find people that have it and, and hugging them. And so I just get it, <laughs> get it over with. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. Survive it and get some, get some immunity, you know, uh, do, but it is, uh, yeah. it is a tough, uh, it is an interesting time to be alive. I'll just put it that way. Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. It could be worse. People have gone through much, much worse in human history though. No doubt. So kind of to wrap things up, you're doing some really cool stuff. I'm sure some of our listeners would like to talk to you, maybe hire you, maybe just pick your brain. What's the best way to find you? Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you two easy choices. One is to go to the website and um, you can learn a little more about us. Um, we have, that, which we didn't talk about today and it's probably not uh, really germane to this, but we have a, we have a jury app that, that helps you in jury selection, keep track of the information and pictures. Uh, and then we have the bulk of our work, which is studying cases. Um, that's www.empiricaljury.com. www.empiricaljury.com. And then that's important because that's also how you can reach me. I'm John at empiricaljury.com. Um, and so if they, they do John, traditional J-O-H-N spelling at empiricaljury.com, they'll get me. Uh, and I love chatting about cases. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, and one of the luxuries of stumbling into this has been that we've studied cases in, I think the last time I looked, 30 states. Uh, we've been involved in gosh, $550 million in verdicts in the last couple of years. Um, and I've gotten to work with phenomenal lawyers. I've learned so much. I'm sure like your, like your podcast, you learn so much talking to good lawyers. And uh, the only ch- trick is to try to implement it all when you're working on your own case. Yeah. Yeah, I encourage people, you know, the extent, the more of this research we do, the more of a data set you'll get overall that allows you to look at overall trends between cases too. And I just think more and more this is going to really, you know, revolutionize things. And frankly, you know, the more of a body we as the plaintiff's bark and build up for you or anyone else who's doing this kind of work, I mean, have no doubt that the defense has been doing this kind of work uh, for <laughs> quite a while. And, and, and yeah. we might not know it, but there, there's no way that let's say Allstate 
who's going to try thousands of jury trials a year doesn't do something to figure out what works. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt. Um, I will tell you if, if this is, tell me if, if this is interesting to you and if not, you can cut it. Uh, but the, I, I was, I was helping pick a jury in an MDL in Arizona. The defense it had about five jury people there and a couple of them from what I could tell were data folks. And when we went through, the judge was going to give some real voir dire. It was very clear to me that they were asking questions only to pretend to be asking questions so the jury didn't think they were weird. They weren't digging in. And it became clear to me that they had picked the jury before they showed up. Between the questionnaire and their analytics and their background research on jurors, right, which is happening aggressively, um, they knew who they were going to seat. I mean, they really did. And they had a couple they were going to work to get off for cause, and they asked them a few questions. And they had some folks they were going to use peremptories on, and they knew the jury they wanted. I think that's where we're at. Um, I can tell you also that if a firm in, uh, in Denver on its website advertises they have three PhD social scientists that use data analytics to help their clients win. And right now, my view is they're using that largely to market so that they can get business from other defense firms. But they are using it when they're figuring out how to work cases. And the smart ones are using it. And we're seeing this with plaintiff's attorneys. I'm running a study right now with a plaintiff's attorney to figure out if they should take the case. Right. We're running another study with attorneys to figure out how they should shape discovery and what their experts should be talking about. We run a lot of studies to value cases for mediation so we can give the mediator real data instead of gut instinct. And then we run studies to figure out what to talk about at trial and who to seat as jurors. And you can bet that in big defense cases, they're doing all those things all the time. And if we're not doing them at some point, I think we're going to find ourselves sort of asymmetrically behind. Yeah, and that's actually the case that I'm going to talk about hiring you today when we're done with this is, you know, our expert, we have expert reports due in three months. Our expert has three different theories that he's come up with, and we want to test to see whether any of them are better or worse than the others, you know, because we've got to do some expensive testing and stuff to validate the theories. And, you know, so what, where, where are we going to go with this? Is this something, and frankly, is this something we should be going all out on or not? Yeah. Oh, that sounds fun. Good. I'm excited about that conversation. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, everyone. I, I do really encourage you to go on to empiricaljury.com. There's some really cool stuff on there. Uh, and this is just a, a new thing. And thank you so much for sharing, especially on the juror attitudes with COVID and everything else. It's, uh, it's something we all need to know. And I'm really grateful for you uh, for coming on board and, and sharing that with us. Thanks. I'm honored to be on the show. I, I, I love listening. So it's, it's fun to be on. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. 
We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.